0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of Public Power Underground. This is the fifth episode in a series on electric market enthusiasm. Today we're recording an expert roundtable to discuss different choices made in market paradigms and how it all makes sense. Specifically, we're trying to frame this as a compare and contrast episode of different market design choices, but in a fun, infotaining kind of way. This is Paul Dockery. I'm the creator and director of creative director of Public Power Underground, the manager of Klatskin IPUD's power department, and the producer for today's recording. Joining me are three wholesale electric market experts. I'm gonna start with (laughs) Laura Trelease. Laura is the Energy Authority's senior market design and policy analyst. Laura has been a staple of market discussions in Northwest Public Power circles prior to joining TEA. She held the same title at BPA and prior to that was a senior policy analyst for the public generating pool. Laura, glad to have I'm so glad you agreed to join us.
1: <laughs> glad to be here, thanks Paul.
0: Anything you want to add to your bio that I missed that is fun? Or um, anything to add?
1: I started out in the energy industry. I heard about Bonville Power Administration because I used to go fishing with my dad all the time at Bonville Dam. So I was like Bonneville Power, Bonneville Dam. It was like all these childhood memories. And um, that's how that's how I got started. And they paid for my master's program. So it was a good deal. Perfect.
0: That is a great origin story at Bonneville Power <laughs> Administration. Uh, joining Laura and I is Jeff Spires. Jeff is a director at PowerX, where he has held positions of increasing responsibility in the power group. Over a roughly 18-year career that included what appears to be from LinkedIn, which is where I got my intel because Jeff wouldn't send me a bio so that I could copy and paste it. A brief stint as a vice president at Morgan Stanley. Welcome to Public Power Underground, Jeff. Thank you, Paul. Happy to be here. Happy to have you uh, and get your perspective. This is going to be fun, right? Right? Absolutely. Okay. That's uh, a leading question, as always. (laughs) Joining Jeff, Laura, and I is Carrie Simpson. Carrie is the Director of Western Markets for Public Service of Colorado, an Excel Energy company. She has had a distinguished career in energy, having worked for not only Excel Energy twice, but also SPP, Invenergy, and Guzman Energy. Luckily, she is also a sports fan. And I say luckily because of how I decided to frame this conversation today. So, <laughs> Carrie, uh, welcome to Public Power Underground.
2: Thank you. I, I look forward to the discussion. It should, should be fun.
0: Now, you are probably the, the most enthusiastic of sports fans on. Like, maybe we should have a competition at the beginning to see who is the most enthusiastic of sports fans. But I want to say it's you, probably. Am I
2: right? I feel that way. Yeah, just based on, you know, my interaction so far. I, I think I am. I, I like all sports. I can... Pretty much, if it's a competition on TV, I will be watching it, whatever it is.
0: Okay, so. this is great. I uh, I I am a like a podcast listener of a lot of sports podcasts, which is where I get my like interest from. Uh, Jeff, like just hockey, I assume, because you're from Canada.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm I think I'm gonna live up to the Canadian stereotype, so uh, you know I'll try to avoid too many hockey uh, related comments and analogies, but you'll have to bear with me.
0: Maybe they'll be insightful. Carrie, do you watch
2: hockey too? Is that one of the sports that you'll you know? Watch I I on? will watch hockey. Uh, I know what icing is, um, okay. And, I but don't. that's in like a penalty box thing. Um, But I'm not an expert at hockey. I did,
0: is, is icing like offsides in soccer? Mm-hmm. Is that some like yeah, similar complicated of. rules? Similarities. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Laura, uh, what uh, any any of these sport analogies going to be fun for you, or are we just going uh, just really nailing the energy market component to this?
1: Probably the latter. But I did I did play high I did play high school basketball, and my team uh, won state one year almost. So almost. <laughs>
0: almost. That's a good. <laughs> there answer. you go. Yeah. So that's, that's perfect. Well, uh, well, let's get into it. So our export panel is going to help me draw distinctions between choices and in the electric market design with the help of professional sports analogies. We're going to consider several elements of a market, including things like one market design as an analog to the rules of the game for professional sports. Resource adequacy being analogous to roster management in professional sports. Possibly, maybe. I think that's kind of where we're going to go with it. At least that's where I'm going to frame it and they're going to tell me where it's wrong. And possibly the comparing market outcomes from a bilateral market to a centrally dispatched wholesale market is like comparing basketball players from across different eras. We're going to get into it. It's going to be fun. Uh, I'll also ask what choices wholesale electric markets, capital M, the real like the markets have available to them and perhaps what choices existing markets have already made because the NBA instituting the flopping rule is a choice that makes the game more fun to watch. And I suspect wholesale electric markets have choices available to them to make. Price formation more accurately reflect the needs of the grid. Any overarching commentary on how this is all getting framed up before we get into it? Anybody want to dive in and provide some like, this is a terrible
3: idea, Paul, because we could stop now and stop recording, or we can just spend another hour doing something. Uh, I think it's great. (laughs) I'm sure we can take that analogy and stretch it out and and twist it anyway. So it'll, it'll be great. Yeah, the audience
0: for this podcast specifically is like me and maybe like two or three other people that really will find this interesting and entertaining. Uh, You know, it's going to be it's going to be success as long as one other person besides me enjoys it. Perfect. Okay. Well, with that general overview, let's start with a fan favorite roster management. During an interview we had with Jesse Jenkins, he compared resource diversity in the electric sector to like positions on a basketball team, just like a team wouldn't start a game with five point guards, a robust and healthy wholesale electric markets needs a diverse portfolio of resources, Uh, but rules around free agency, the draft and trades vary by sport because it has an impact on uh, because there's an impact on the game, just like there's a difference in the way resource adequacy programs work in different wholesale electric market paradigms. So I'm going to start with you, Carrie, uh, on this one. NFL free agency rules are very different than basketball free agency, different again from baseball, different again than soccer, and I assume hockey, not that I know anything about hockey free agency. Can you <laughs> help us frame up the different ways markets acquire resource adequacy products and whether there's this analogy breaks down?
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to, that description of you, you don't want to have five point guards on the floor. Um, Cause you know, a taller team might just dunk on you all the time and, and that would be bad for your team. Um, and so for resource adequacy, yeah, you need, you need diversity in resources because sometimes um, you know, if, if gas prices are really high, uh, maybe you want to use a different resource um, and that that's cheaper uh, and, and in today's world, you know, if you're you're looking for wind and solar, um, and it's not sunny today, uh, you need some diversity in in what resources you have uh, out in out on the court that are out, you know, um, keeping the lights on. So, uh, yeah, there's different ways that utilities and in, in, in markets have um, go through the resource procurement process. So probably the most common is is mm-hmm. just. bilateral. And, and I would, I would compare that to, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, use Michael Jordan. I know that's old school now, but Michael Jordan, he played for the bulls, but like if he uh, had a deal to go make a bunch of money and go play for the Houston Rockets um, there would be a conversation taking place between Michael Jordan and the Rockets and they would have to negotiate how to get him. Um, and maybe even have to do a deal with the bulls to get him. Um, and, and bilateral forward um, or bilateral resource procurement can be like that. If, if uh, a utility has a resource um, that another utility wants, um, then uh, you just call up that utility sometimes and ask that question, say, hey, are you willing to sell that to me at a price? And then negotiate it. Um, and, and sometimes these are more, um, sophisticated where there's like a, a request for proposals where utilities go out and say, Hey, I, I need a bunch of point guards. <laughs> I need a bunch of, uh, posts, you know, I, I only have point, <clears throat> point guards and need, need some more diversity. So I'm looking specifically for a post player. I don't want, uh, so, so like I'm looking specifically for a wind farm and, uh, not just, a you know, a, a gas, uh, plant and so um there's opportunities for the for the market to to respond to that so that's bilateral trades are happening between parties
0: like bilateral is most analogous to just free agency like unrestricted free agency bilateral market you you just go go go, go do what you need to do
2: yeah so you know in the nfl gosh we really need a new quarterback we got to go negotiate with other quarterbacks that are out there um versus like the another type of resource adequacy is like more, they call it centrally procured process where there's a market, uh, that has all of the information of all of the resources out there. And they're, they're looking at, okay. Um, and, and for, or maybe in the be like deciding what players are on each team, um, across the, the NBA to make it nice and competitive. um, and it's more done uh, at the at the highest lever, plot level by the, the market itself um, rather than just conversations between utilities. So I'll pause there and let my peers chime in, see where I've screwed up the analogy if I'm on
1: target or not. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, well, I think for um, just maybe a different angle too, when we talk about resource adequacy, what it's trying to do is set a a standard for entities to to meet and ensure that there's adequate resources available to the market to meet the needs of the grid and that the market can, can actually solve and have reliable solutions. And it also ensures that everybody's bringing their fair share to the table so that entities are not coming in short and relying on someone else's capacity investments, or to like I mentioned, that the footprint is not coming up short and there's not enough resources to let, allow the market to solve. So at a high level, resource adequacy is setting that standard and providing transparency um, around what's available and what's brought to the table. And um, as Carrie mentioned, there's a couple different ways that RTOs and ISOs go about doing that, whether that's the bilateral, which Carrie did a great job describing, and SPP, both SPP and the KISO use a bilateral RA procurement framework. And then there's a, a, a centralized capacity market where, uh, similar to an organized day ahead market, capacity. Is cleared in a centralized form, and as as uh, the the capacity market is running out of resources, the prices start to increase to the cost of a new uh, building, a new resource, and so that's just also a little bit of framing around resource adequacy and its objective, and um, and some of the different types.
0: So you did a nice distinction there that I think I need to dig in a little bit more. So it sounds like there's there's this centrally procured resource adequacy and then there's the bilateral procurement of resource adequacy. What about markets that don't make that choice to do like long term procurement? Because it seems like maybe like ERCOT is where in this analogy is a, is an energy only market fall and maybe not in the market at all, but like, where does ERCOT fall in this scale of resource adequacy and, and the, the long-term procurement of it? I mean, I'll pivot to you, Jeff, because you haven't gotten in on this question yet. You got to take.
3: Sure. I I mean, so first of all, I think Carrie and Laura did a, a great job of kind of outlining. There's multiple ways to get there in terms of trying to find uh, uh, to achieve resource adequacy. And you know, the ERCOT example is, is certainly on one end of the spectrum of saying, we're not actually going to have a formalized plan that we use ahead of time. We are gonna rely on our short-term market price signals and the ability for those prices to rise to very high levels during periods of scarcity to provide a, a, a price signal for resources through, um, through the market itself to be incented to be made available to the market on a longer term basis. So basically if you have um, an expectation of future market prices that can rise to, I think an ERCOT as high as $9,000 per megawatt hour during periods of scarcity, then theoretically, that type of energy only design would say that resources would look ahead and see that that opportunity is available to them and that they that's in effect enough to incent new uh, resources to to be built and to come onto the grid and participate in the market. And so I think, you know, aside from from ERCOT and uh, Alberta up in Canada that have Um, that has an energy only design, I think the majority of the markets have said that they need a combination of forward planning, whether it's a bilateral framework or a capacity market, they need some kind of forward standard that works in combination and and is complementary with market prices, including scarcity pricing during tight conditions and that those things would work together. can I, can, Sure. Can, what, one of the things, you, so it sounds a little bit like
0: if you're an energy only market, it's a little bit like a pickup game. You're just gonna, if you've got, uh, enough, like uh, bets on the game that people will come and participate because there's a lot of money on the line. Uh, and you're just trying to get your best roster live. Is that a, is that too far? Did I go too far? Carrie, did I go too far? Is this,
2: uh, yeah, was, I was trying to, so it, yeah, it's almost like, well, um, if the the going rate for a really good shortstop right now is you know 30 million dollars a year uh, I think ERCOT's philosophy will be like well, somebody's gonna want to play for 30 million dollars a year so they're gonna they're gonna get really good at being a shortstop and come play for me
0: um, okay. So it's almost like the baseball analogy where it's an unrestricted. There's no like, what what do they call it? And I, 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 sh- I should have uh, prepped a little bit more on the sports side of this before this episode. But there's no, uh, what's the roster and the amount of money you can spend on your roster carrying? Oh, salary there. caps? There's no salary caps. It's almost like a no salary cap kind of framework. Uh, I proposed two different frameworks for this on very, like, there's the pickup game and then there's baseball, no salary cap. Like these are very different, like jars of incorrectness I've just established.
2: Uh, right. Well, and and then, yeah, it's breaking down in my head right now. That's um, fine.
0: The analogies don't have to work 100. percent I did cut well, you off, Jeff, because you wanted to speak to something after the ERCOT thing, and then I was like, "But we need to talk about whether this is a pickup game first.
3: Well, well, just in, <laughs> just in general, I think you know resource adequacy and being in conf- being confident in having enough supply is just so important, and I think there's a pretty broad recognition of that. Um, I-, I think resource adequacy in the West is something that's really obviously a cornerstone for reliable operation of the grid, but getting that right also helps enable further expansion of markets because I think the challenge that we've, we've sort of seen in the past in, in some of the dialogue and discussion around this is that if you don't have enough resources available and you haven't planned the system properly in advance, it's just, it's really a challenge to address that right before game time um you know and one. and i there, i don't know if there's any other sports where this has occurred but every once in a while in professional hockey you'll hear an instance where both their goaltenders are hurt and they've pulled somebody basically off the street and put him in net and now he's you know i've heard of, I've heard of this yeah, wasn't there and, like and,
0: a like one of the <laughs> cup games whatever cup you play for wasn't there a cup game where there was like somebody off the street that was being the goalie I don't know why I heard this it, it happens thing?
3: and me you know I'm sure they've strapped on skates in the past but they're certainly not prepared to be put in a pressure situation getting you know professional slap shots etc so <laughs> that's the kind of thing that can go pretty badly and I I think in, in the context of the energy markets, you know, once you get to that operating time frame, once you get to day ahead in real time, you're in that operating horizon, it's obviously too late to go back and add new resources and address fundamental challenges. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, in the context of market design, resource sufficiency, trying to evaluate whether each entity has taking those appropriate steps ahead of time, but doing that on a day ahead of real time basis is is difficult because it's just too late. And so, you know, in my mind, it's been the right sort of general decision across many of the entities in the West to prioritize resource adequacy, focus on the RAP program, the Western resource adequacy program, moving that forward because that strong foundation of resource adequacy is really something that then, opens the door for um, expanding regional organized markets in the West and, and ensuring that having a, an RA as kind of your um, underpinning to that is your starting point. And then you have uh, an opportunity to find complementary elements to the RA and the forward planning and your market design and the short-term dispatch of those resources. Uh,
2: it- and I would add, you know, there's one thing we haven't really talked about is another important aspect of resource adequacy and the program is it establishes um, kind of a baseline criteria yeah. for how each resource uh, satisfies a, a particular like reliability metric. So we'll call it, you know, what can we depend that um, on, you know, during a, the most difficult day of the year hour um, for that resource to contribute to, to the team and the team being the grid. Um, and so, um, and and I guess in the, bring it back to sports, it's like what, you know, if, if you're, if you're putting your team together and you're planning your resources together, you know, you may want somebody who scores 20 points a game, every game. And i never have to worry about them not scoring 20 points a game. Um, but you might need somebody else who's really good at defense um, they're not scoring points, but they're uh, they're providing we'll call it, like voltage support to the system. Okay. Yes. Yes,
0: we will. That's, uh, that's what we'll say. <laughs> exactly. Love it. Um,
2: so those kind of things. So so one great thing about a resource adequacy program and and the RAP that Jeff mentioned is is kind of coming up with and, and coming up with those a um, consistent criteria uh, that everyone understands across the region. Okay. Well, that's you know, in this part of the country, this resource we can depend on it for, you know, X amount of contribution to our grid, um, and and then that goes into the the true like planning of the system and how you're planning your team, how you're planning your resource portfolio, and and like Jeff so you're not doing that uh, right before game time um, because you may not be able to to get everything you need in order to win the game, so
0: yeah I like that I like that link back to the sports and the the purpose of trying to do that standardized metrics to make sure you have the type of resources necessary to be reliable uh, so I just kind of kind of want to review like because we have the the centrally procured we talked a little bit about centrally procured mechanisms for acquiring resource adequacy and and I don't know Laura I think you touched on um, those like the bilateral procurement I think you mentioned, KISO and SPP. The centrally procured was another mechanism. What markets, uh, wholesale markets today use that centrally procured market?
1: Um, Yeah, I I printed out my list. Uh, New York ISO, ISO New England, MISO and PJM.
0: Okay. okay, so we got those four and we talked a little bit about energy only markets who rely on more uh, market fundamentals for procurement and scarcity pricing. Those are I believe we said ERCOT's the only one in the in the US. Well, get Alberta, we'll, we'll, that's a North American market, right, Jeff? I should Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh so the the last we haven't really talked about which of those mechanisms like today in in the non iso WEC. How would uh, what we do today and in, like integrated, integrated resource planning for integrated utilities or, or what other entities in, in the WEC do in the bilateral market today? Would you consider that like the bilateral procurement mechanisms or is this something completely different that kind of falls out of it? Oh.
2: It's Sorry. most similar to the bilateral. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: But there's yeah, no, but- to your point, Carrie, there's, uh-huh. no, um, there's no established consistent framework across all of those individual parties so it's each one's coming up with its own criteria for establishing what makes it okay
2: so so like each state has its own rules for how it wants its utilities to be planning Um, and then also that's something that often organized markets like SVP and MISO um, and that they create that framework for all of the utilities in it
0: so if I really wanted to stretch this analogy, would would the, the the Western parties outside of Kaiso joining together into a central like rap framework? Is that like when the ABA joined with the NBA so that they could <laughs> mix all of their different players' competencies together and have a more uh, more competitive NBA National Basketball Association? Is that a decent? I mean, we, we, is there something here, Carrie?
2: Um, yeah, you could probably go there. Um, yeah, or it's like let's get all the big uh, powerhouse football teams into the same conference. Um, oh, and, it's like conference. Oh,
0: and uh, oh, conference realignment. You went there, Carrie. Yeah, and oh, uh, and let's we're putting this let's on social these media. Guys, gonna...
2: let, let's get the you know get everybody coordinated and um, have rules for who wins the conference. And I don't know. I I'm now I'm going too far.
0: Okay, I think I think we really I think we hit the resource adequacy and analogy. Are we ready to go to the next one? Sure. Okay, if I have my soundboard, i do something. In post, I'll probably insert something here to do. Uh, I'll to, maybe they're like a whistle. Maybe I can do a whistle or a clock. It'll be great. We'll find a, the perfect soundboard. Okay.
2: Team!
0: So if the resource ad, if resource adequacy is like roster management, real-time markets are the actual game. And price formation translates to player stats in that setting lineups revolves around scoring and resource resources operate around prices. I'm going to dig one step deeper into this analogy to get to the question. So it's, it's around these tweaks to the game that are very important in professional sports organizations to tweak the games to make it more enjoyable to fans. So I'm wondering, are wholesale markets, do they do this as well? Are they tweaking rules as the market evolves to better set price signals for resources in the same way that like... As I mentioned earlier, the NBA tweaked its flopping rule to make the game more fun and maybe the the game's more competitive amongst. And similar to like the NBA's uh, uh, drafts, right? They try to to help these evolve these rules so there's a more uh, competitive games that is more enjoyable for customers. I'm going to start with you, Jeff. Is, is are there tweaks to these? wholesale electric market rules as time evolves so that uh, the games be- or the the market becomes more equitable or or better reflects the needs of the grid.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe before I get into that, just to kind of respond to your general concept because I like it. But you said okay, a lot. Okay. Yeah, I did um, say a lot. You know, number one, you you kind of basically boiled it down to it really comes down to the game, like all the prep, all the free agency drafts, everything revolves around the best game, uh, you know, putting your best team out there and, and having the best game possible. And I think the electric grid is, is really the same that really what this all comes down to is meeting load reliably, cost-effectively uh, in real time. And uh, so market design, including these price formation choices is really foundational. And we just, I think, have to recognize how important getting that right really is. Um, but I just wanted to start with, because I've been thinking about this a little bit in this, this analogy, and I kind of think, you know, market prices in real time are a lot like the score. And, and like you say, like the stats, well, if we think about what does the scoring do in terms of a, a sport or any, any kind of sport is it's tracking the game as it's happening. So as you're, that The game goes on, the coach is going to respond, they're going to put different players on the field, depending on what the situation is. When the game's on the line, players are going to be incented to give it their all. You know, if there's five minutes left, you might pull the goalie, you might go for the field goal, etc. You're going to change your behavior in response to what's going on. And so market prices in the short term have a lot of similarities to that, where they're incenting entities to make themselves available at the right time and in the right location to perform when they're really needed. There's a really important short-term element to getting prices right in the energy markets. But I think as you were kind of alluding to as well, there's the longer term view of saying scoring also gives us stats that we can keep track of over time. And I think that it really made me think of Moneyball where Stats and scoring allowed for the A's to figure out what their roster should be, who are the best players, and how do we use their capabilities to set a roster that can help them win. And that's another, I think, analogy of market prices in the long term provide information about what are the resources that can best meet the needs of the grid. That really complements everything we were just talking about before. You have a resource adequacy, excuse me, a resource adequacy standard. You have common counting criteria, but then you also have a market with prices that can allow for an understanding of which resources are best suited to meet the needs of the grid. Whether they're, you know, flexible, whether they're new battery and storage technologies, clean energy, etc. So there's both a short-term and long-term component to efficiency gains by having prices be accurate and then the last thing of course is that players that have the best stats get compensation that reflects their abilities and so accurate prices also result in an equitable allocation of benefits between buyers and sellers in the market and so all of this really what i would boil it down to is if there's one kind of single message trying to strive for accurate market prices is just so important as we shift into organized markets for all of these reasons. Um, So I didn't answer your question, but I just wanted to start there because I like the way you frame that. But you you said a lot and I wanted to try to see if I could tie it back somehow to sports. It was well done. I myself on the back.
0: That was good. So I we're going to take this one step further. So is like Kevin Durant, a player that can do everything. He can do defense. He can score. He can shoot the three. He can play the post. Is that like hydro in this analogy? We'll just go there. Why not? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> very the-
3: well, maybe you, you, exactly. You have to look at the resource and say, what are the attributes they can provide? Can you count on them for capacity? Can they provide flexibility? All those different things that ultimately the grid's looking for. The most valuable player
0: in the game. So I do want to dig into a little bit more around how we tweak rules, though, because like the NBA didn't have a three point line and then they added a three point line. And I suspect that changed the to, to your point, Jeff, it changed the incentive structure on what type of players you wanted to add. Right. And similar with like the hand checking rule that, that, that you were looking for changing the game so it was more competitive or it, it made it more fun for fans. Well, I mean, that's the wrong analogy. Uh, but Laura, maybe I'll pivot back to you if, as long as you're open to it. What type of rule changes are we contemplating in the markets today? And are they similar things where we're tweaking these market rules so that you know it better uh, incentivizes attributes we need during this energy transition? What do you think?
1: Yeah, a couple things that come to mind is, we're really moving from a grid of natural gas and coal, which are pretty stable, um, reliable capacity resources to variable energy resources. And so that drives the need for more flexibility on the grid. And it creates more uncertainty between day ahead and real time. And so markets are really looking at, OK, in the day ahead market now, I don't need to just procure energy and my standard ancillary services, but maybe I need to be looking at developing new flex reserve products that procure additional flexible resources to make sure I have enough to meet ramps and the different changes in variable energy between day ahead and real time to cover some of that forecast uncertainty that there is. So that's one example that comes to mind of how markets are evolving, to to accommodate some of these changes and ensure they have the right resources to reliably meet the needs of the grid.
0: So are we getting to the point where uh like a whole new resource type is going to have market rules evolve around it because we need something new? Carrie you're nodding. So uh well, you got to take care?
2: Yeah, so I mean I think you're seeing that in um some of the the FERC orders that have come out uh Incenting and in, in trying to, um, you know, make sure that the art, the organized markets are providing uh, the right rules to enable different kinds of resources to participate. So distribution side generation that traditionally really hasn't been involved, but now that technology is such that potentially they can. Uh, making sure that the there's no bar- these there's, there aren't barriers to participation and so um, and so you see it you see it in that context where, where ferc is is putting out policy to try to ins- to make sure that markets are are enabling as much participation of the different kinds of technologies as possible i mean you you saw that with um, especially with like battery storage when that started to um, show up i mean p pjm had very special rules to take advantage of the um the, the quick movement of batteries for, for regulating reserves. And they had to create all kinds of new rules around that, that, you know, 20 years ago, nobody would have thought about just because the technology wasn't there. And so, um, and so, yeah. And so let's bring it back to sports. Um, You know, if, if, like you mentioned the NBA Mm -hmm. flopping rule, um, if, if people, you know, they've changed the game because of how the, their, they're um, playing so we can we, we can use like zone defense like in the NBA right right um, you know people got really really good at that and it makes the game boring yeah. um, and so they're like let's get rid of that you can't do zone defense and I think there's certain exceptions to it so they changed the rules and now people play the game differently and so um, as technology changes uh, the game of markets um, I don't want to call it but it's like it's not really a game, but it's just how how the rules are set up to make sure that there's as much competition and the right price signals as possible to make sure that those technologies can participate. In and, in a, you know, the goal is to keep things reliable and lower cost customers.
0: OK, so you went there. So I got to ask the question, what's the flopping rule of the electric market design? What is there a rule out there that people started, uh, you know, taking advantage of and then needed to be needed to be? changed because um it wasn't helping the uh attributes necessary to serve the 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 grid so
2: so probably some of the old like uh, some of the old market monitoring things you know some of the um people were uh using virtuals and um putting on other uh financial transmission right um transactions at the same time and creating some uh, noise in the markets to their benefit Okay. And FERC came in and said, hmm, that looks like you're manipulating the market. That's not true to the, you know, the economics of the market. And so flopping is not, you know, that's just uh, uh, drama that's brought into the market to try to get a call. And so they out- outlawed that. And, and where, where this can, you know, that's where the market monitor is really important. Um, in the Office of Enforcement and FERC to make sure that people aren't abusing the game uh, or abusing markets.
0: So I had, when I was framing this up, I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to use this analogy, like I need to like have the corollary actors. So I was wondering like, is FERC like the league office where they're the ones, is that analogy? Like the NBA league office is like FERC? How's that work? I don't know. Is that right?
2: Maybe. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I just interviewed, I'm just going to put a promo in there. We interviewed Chair <laughs> Chair Glick. Uh, for oh. Power Underground. It's live now. Go listen. It, it was a great conversation. But mm-hmm. I, afterwards, I learned that, like, he's a big sports fan and he would love to be like a sports czar someday. I don't... So, okay. so in some ways, it's like he could... Like, this is the, this is a very... It's a translatable skill set. You know, you're basically just like a league commissioner for the energy markets. It's a translatable skill, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, they're setting so up
2: the rules and um, FERC is... And has the them. authority to regulate wholesale electricity markets and transmission. So,
0: um, okay. any follow up there, Jeff, uh, on 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 this framing and and it sounds like you agreed with the framing. Like real time, the real time is the game. Like that's where this all has to has to play out is real time. At least the framing's right.
3: Absolutely, and I think I think uh, Laura and and Carrie did a good job there. You know, I think the question we're kind of fundamentally asking is. You know, is your price formation actually reflecting the costs of the grid? Are you actually getting it right in terms of a market design that sets up the system uh, in a way that's uh, necessary so the system operators see they have the resources they need to meet load, and then that you have uh, capability to dispatch resources and market prices that are, are reflective of that. And I think the challenge of, that we all sort of recognize is that that's just becoming more difficult. The grid is so variable, it's so dynamic that I think you have to really, as, as Laura pointed out, expand your, your objective of sort of saying, well, it's not just about matching supply and demand. We need to recognize that we need flexibility to respond to changes in real time. We need to, a way to manage that uncertainty. We need a way to manage the ramps that might occur as solar falls off. We need to have differentiation of resources based on whether or not we can count on them to be available in the future or not. Um, There is a much broader kind of array of, of needs and attributes to meet the grid's needs reliably and ultimately our price formation construct should be sending a price signal for those other needs um, yeah, just in terms of examples, I think scarcity pricing is one that we, we talk about a lot and is clearly important, you know, asking the question of when system conditions are, are really tight, when performance is critical, when, you know, attracting imports from other areas is needed, do your prices rise in a way that reflects those scarce conditions? And I think that's a, that's a, a, a topic that needs uh, a lot of discussion in, in any market. Um, but I think you know the, the, the only last thing I would add is price formation matters more than just those periods of scarcity. It matters all the time. Um, you know, one of the topics that we've talked about um, recently and done some analysis on, for example, is fast start pricing. And the question on that topic is, do market prices reflect the cost of the resources you're actually using to meet load? When gas peakers are being started up and running in an afternoon peak, are the market prices reflecting the cost of those or not? And that is to ensure that that occurs, to ensure that when peakers, you know, gas peakers are running and being used to meet load. For those to get incorporated into the market price requires special logic and those are the types of market design choices that really matter in terms of being able to confidently say when we are meeting load in real time we are uh, producing a market price that is consistent with the cost of the resources we're using.
0: So, in like the sports analogies, in some ways, would it be like a, a quarterback in the NFL who wants to go to free agency to get a payday, and his franchise is like tossing the franchise tag on him, and he's like, "Hey, that isn't the true cost of a of a you know star quarterback in the league. That's just yes. you know if, what is the top." So, is that an analogy here? <laughs> yes. okay, you're you're in line, you're nodding.
2: Yeah, I was thinking through like there's all kinds of rules like in baseball around like if a uh, you know a team puts the tag on them and and then they go and they get free agency the team gets a gets a compensation pick back that they can use in the draft there's all kinds of rules around that right to to make sure that teams get the value of the that they also don't lose the value of their their asset that they had on their team so i think jeff's explanation it it does kind of correlate there
0: good anything anything else you want to add laura before we get to the next one anything interesting you you think we're we need to tease a little bit more on this real time as the actual thing that this is everything else in between is just getting from your roster to real time. What do you think, Laura?
1: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it was pretty well covered. I think Jeff mentioned the, the topics that are um, hot <laughs> in the West on fast start pricing and scarcity pricing and, um, you know i'd just add to that i think another thing that really affects prices is how much the market operator has to do outside the market to make oh, sure wow. that there are enough resources to meet the real time needs of the grid and are they procuring everything they need through the day ahead market or do they have these processes afterwards rock and exceptional dispatch and and all of those that could be a whole conversation in itself but you know those are those are actions where the market operator needs to go outside the market and grab more resources because they need those resources to be available for the grid so you know, that will also affect where the price clears at in the day ahead market.
0: Great transition because uh, we're running out of time. And so we'll make it the transition. So by definition, it's a great one. Uh, So (laughs) team uh we're going to move on to like what the day ahead so if re, uh resource adequacy is like roster setting and the real time is uh like the game in between is this day ahead market um and i had to noodle on it for a while but i had this like hypothesis that possibly the stuff in the middle is like coaching training and practice right so it's setting up your roster it's trying to get them ready set them up so that they're optimally ready to dispatch and support the grid during the the real-time market the, does the analogy break down i'm gonna start with you carrie do you think this analogy break down, or is there something there
2: um yeah, I and mean, and or, or gonna, is it something else yeah you're gonna set your roster maybe maybe it's like you set your roster day ahead and expect what you're you got everything ready to go to perform tomorrow uh, in the <laughs> in the real time. Um, and that's how you set up your team, got everybody ready to go and primed. And then you go into real time and oh, you know, the goalie uh, you know the goalie busted got his injured and that play. Get <laughs> so we gotta find a replacement goalie. And you know, you're gonna pay for the that difference, the fact that your star goalie didn't show up uh you you might have a less effective goalie, and um you know like or it, the reverse can happen where it's like, oh wow, um we got um you know we didn't need all the the resources today that I thought I needed on my team uh when i when I s- set things up for tomorrow um because just circumstances changed in real time um and so that's the day ahead is you, you're doing your best to prepare for what's gonna happen um and it's really it's a hedge on uh, what may go wrong or may
0: go off tomorrow. So, Laura, in, in like conversations when I was trying to make make sense of this many months ago or years, like you you made this distinction that was kind of new to me around the day ahead market is just financial. It's not actually it's not the physical transfer. Can you talk a little bit about that, or am I misquoting you? How should how should we think about the day ahead market in this construct?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting because the day ahead market's intended to set up your resources for real time, but there's a financial piece to it too, okay. where entities can can use the day ahead market as a hedging tool to hedge themselves against real-time price volatility, for example. And so in an organized market, you have all of these other things like congestion revenue rights and virtual bidding and and players are are you know, deciding how much to bid in, what to bid in, um, into the day ahead market and financially settle so they can take a position against real time. And um, I was going to add on to what Carrie was saying. Another thing about the day ahead market, in an organized day ahead market, you also have a, a, a security constrained economic dispatch where you're you're making sure that resources can actually get to the load and and be deliverable to load and so um you know if you have your your player coming down from Canada to the game but the borders closed
2: you know you kind of want to
1: know that <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a day at market can 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 let you know that so you can find a different player
0: I think that was a shot at you, Jeff. Is the border going to close when you are trying to come down? What? It's open. <laughs>
1: it's open now. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Any, so, so there is there is like uh, you are setting up your resources. So it's it is there is some like physical need there because some of these resources physically need to make sure they're operating at a level so they can be operating uh, to operate in the real time market, regardless of the contingencies of the real time. It, it. But you mentioned Laura, like the virtual bidding and convergence bidding. I mean, some of this is just, let's leave the sports analogy alone for a little bit. And can you talk a little bit about the, like what that's trying to do and why that's why we, why it's necessary, I guess, or, or why some markets choose to include it, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, and all markets include virtual and another name for it is convergence bidding. And a big purpose of convergence bidding is to convert converge the day ahead and the real time prices. And participants use it for, you know, as I mentioned, for hedging, for um, taking a position in the day ahead. Um, What they are, they're just financial uh, transactions where you're buying in the day ahead at a certain price and automatically selling in real time or vice versa. You're not really a physical um, resource. And so, um, but yeah, their main purpose is to converge. They help increase li- liquidity in the market and competition, and as far as setting prices, and um, they also help prevent exercise of market power. So,
0: so it is. Uh, am I? Uh, this is where not the expert, just an enthusiast, is it? Like ignorance will say comes into uh, comes into it. So the bilateral market, like do we don't have. I mean, do we have something like that? Is the behavior in the bilateral market reflect this, even if there aren't specific mechanisms? Or do we have this all the time? Like, how does that work compared to our existing bilateral market today? I guess we do have just some, we probably have, we have, probably have some financial transactions. We do, don't we? Oh, man, you're all looking at me like an idiot. This is fine. <laughs> virtual. Is Leave it uh, virtual, in. Leave it in.
2: Yeah, virtuals ahead, don't here. exist outside of a day ahead market, organized market construct because it's, okay. it's facilitated by the market operator um, in the day ahead market and then a settlement in real time. So there's not virtuals or conversions okay. getting out of that. But there is financial trading that okay. occurs bilaterally uh, outside of an organized market.
0: So the the financial trading is an analog to the same sort of mechanisms within an organized market. And you're saying all of the currently operating organized markets have something like virtual bidding. Am I, I'm putting, somebody's got to clear this up for me.
3: Make it make sense. Bring it in. I think most of them in the U S has some variation and there's different potential constructs and limitations on how virtuals participate. But I think they're generally part of this, of a standard organized market design for the most part. Um, but, I, you know, I, I just would, would add to what Laura said. I think everything she said made a lot of sense. You know, historically, day ahead markets, organized day ahead markets have been largely financial. And I, I think that worked pretty well. But, you know, part of that is if you clear energy in the day ahead market, historically, you were probably already sort of getting physical resources with that for the most part. You know, virtuals aside if your fleet is largely gas based and you're, you're clearing supply and demand, the chances are you've got, by the time you get to real time, you've got some cleared energy from the day ahead market and you've got resources online that are now available to move up or down if you need to make adjustments in real time. And I think we're, we're in a bit of a different paradigm with the variability on the grid with renewable resources where you can't make that assumption anymore that what comes out of the day ahead market is going to be enough necessarily to manage real time, because real time might look a lot different by the time you get there. And so I think what's starting to happen is that need for in that day ahead timeframe to think about, well, how do we position the grid to be ready to respond to a much wider range of potential situations in real time? Is something that is kind of blurring that line between physical and financial markets in the day ahead space because you need to have adequate resources online. You need them to be ready that if your load comes in high or your wind doesn't, you know, wind falls off or there's cloud cover, there needs to be other supply on hand for you to address that. And I think that's where we're seeing certain symptoms that Laura alluded to, where if you see, for example, that day after day, you run your day ahead market, and then right after the market operator starts trying to secure additional resources through other out-of-market mechanisms, that's a, an indicator that your day ahead market is not giving you what you need to be confident that you're moving into the real-time with enough supply. So, you know, I think looking at day ahead market improvements to recognize that there is more importance in terms of setting up the system from a physical perspective to be able to accommodate all that uncertainty and variability is, is something that a lot of markets are thinking about in terms of new products, new flexibility, reserve products, new approaches to to um, how they optimize the system because ultimately I think we'd like to get to a place where you have a day ahead market that properly secures the the, the resources that you need uh to, to meet the the needs of the grid in real time any follow-up i got
0: to I, I just had a question because it, it sounds sure. like so in this day ahead market we talked about price formation in terms of the real-time market but the day-ahead market, it sounds like, also has some of like maybe different like market design rules that affect the setup, um, and 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 this it's similar to out of I guess the out-of-market options probably happen in the day-ahead market mostly, um, in order to set up for real time. And so you're you're talking about virtual bidding and how that can maybe there are rules there that would need to change because of the behavior you see in the day-ahead market. But how much is Virtual bidding a component of that, and how much is um, things like the fast start pricing and, and and that part of what needs to happen to account for what you're talking to, Jeff? I think there should, are
3: I sure. I mean, there are certain all of these things work together. But I, what I was really trying to speak to was the the nature of the day-ahead market. You alluded to the bilateral world where it's pretty clearly in terms of the. Day-ahead trading—it's pretty clearly physical. You you buy a firm energy product on ice at mid-sea. You're buying a physical product to be delivered. You're counting on that to meet your load. That's fairly different from the historical approach that organized markets have used, where your day-ahead transactions are financially binding, but they're not necessarily physical commitments in the same way. Oh, interesting. And so now we're just thinking. I think uh, I, that multiple markets are looking at their day ahead market and evaluating, you know, are they getting the right physical commitment of resources, including standby flexibility to manage uncertainty so that as they get into that real-time <clears throat> timeframe, they've got the right supply mix on hand to, to respond to those different po- range of you know, potential conditions they might see. Okay, well that's a good another great
0: transition also because we're running out of time, but it actually does work for a great transition because I wanted to talk about bilateral markets oh, next. Team. <laughs> so we I did mention like what what is the corollaries <laughs> between the bilateral market and like convergence bidding and and virtual bidding. But you know we're moving, we're contemplating in the Northwest moving from this bilateral market to a centrally dispatched organized market. Um, and and they, they're different uh, with some different rules and different outcomes. And I came to the hypothesis that in some way comparing prices from a bilateral market to a centrally dispatched market feels like comparing players across eras, like comparing Michael Jordan to LeBron or Wilt to Giannis you can't do it by stats alone. You can't just do it by price. Um, you have to compare it on other metrics and including talking to people who are smarter than you and were around in the prior eras. So uh, I'm gonna start with you, Laura. What, do you have any advice for when we're doing this analysis and thinking about the cost benefits of moving markets, what what to think about in evaluating the transition?
1: Yeah, well, maybe I'll uh, I'll start with just some of the differences between the bilateral and organized, um, and then and then give advice, right? Since you asked, <laughs> um, so I think there's a lot of a lot of different areas I could touch on, but maybe I'll just start with in the bilateral construct today. We're trading on a WEC pre-schedule calendar, where some days you're trading the day before you know, Monday for Tuesday or Tuesday for Wednesday, but on Friday, you're setting up to for Monday. Uh, and if Monday's a holiday, then Friday you're setting up for Tuesday. And yeah. there's inherently quite a bit more uncertainty um, when you're trading three, four days beforehand and setting up than, than day ahead. And the organized day ahead market, it's day ahead. Even if it's a holiday or a weekend, it's it's always day ahead. And um, in the bilateral you're trading eight hour 16 hour, heavy load, light load hour blocks. And in the organized market, you're, you're trading hourly, you're, you know, shaping across all hours of the day. So I think that's, that's also a key difference. Bilateral, you're negotiating the price between buyer and seller It's and in the market, buyers and sellers are, are putting in their bids and offers into the market and the market's Matching up the buyers and sellers based on least cost dispatch, and also considering transmission constraints, which I think is is also um, a big difference from from the bilateral market and an organized market. And in a bilateral, you're trading at hubs like the Mid Sea and Palo Verde. And organized market, you're you're for a generator, you're you're selling at your node, and and your price is settling. at that node. And so those are just some of the differences between the two. And, you know, we talked about a lot of different complex topics like virtual and congestion revenue rights and all of that. So that's Public Power Underground. TEA is a big sponsor of Public Power Underground. And um, TEA, we trade in in all the markets. Um, I learned this recently. TEA helped stand up the SPP RTO, chaired the work groups, worked closely with Kerry Simpson, On that, and um, you know, we provide we provide the bridge for public power from organized markets to uh, from bilateral to organized markets. So, a shameless plug there for TEA promo. That's
0: perfect. (laughs) That's perfect. So, that's your advice, like oh, just contract with TEA. Absolutely, advice.
2: (laughs) We'll get you there.
1: We'll
0: get you yeah, there. Get, <laughs> TA will get you there. Um, so you did speak to like a lot of these like fundamental differences, like trading in just sixteen and eight hour blocks instead of every hour of the day. That seems like a pretty big difference. And maybe, uh, what do you feel about my analogy? That it's uh, it's like comparing across eras, Carrie. Do you think? Do you think this is a fair one? Is it like comparing MJ to? Oh, so
2: to- I I actually don't think so. Um- oh. I know. I I think of it more, and I don't mean to offend bilateral market trading, but in terms, it's like um, the more sophisticated the game gets, um, because it's much different to just trade bilaterally um, between parties versus having an an entire market uh, evaluate all the bids and offers and all the congestion and put out prices on every single node. So that's a little, that's, to me, that's a step change in complexity. And so I I don't know that the game was less complex when like Michael Jordan played versus LeBron James right now. Um, It's, it's kind of a different game um, between um, the, it's the bilateral construct and then everything that you have to have in order to participate in an organized market. It's just, there's, there's a lot more involved.
0: Um, so what are you trying to say, Carrie? What is it like then if it's not like so maybe it's like different areas? Um, what are you trying to say? Is it like play, comparing high school basketball to the pros? What are you trying to do here? What are you trying uh, I
2: know, to do here? I know. I, I'm not going to step in this. Um, oh, but, you are. OK.
0: OK. <laughs> okay. Don't worry. <laughs> but, Nobody listens. That's but fine. yeah,
2: so well, maybe I'm just biased and I think Michael Jordan's the best. And so I don't want to, you know, um, put out any kind of analogy that would imply that he's not the best. in in whatever time era okay
0: you're you're staking your claim that uh, MJ's the goat
2: yep
0: okay but but something there right so so because the way i think about it and the way i frame this right it's like the same resources are participating um so maybe you're right that it's like the same resources are going to participate in these markets but their stats are going to change dramatically so maybe it is just a different game because it's like you know it's like going from basketball to i don't know what's a what's a basketball yeah well
2: it's like it's like playing pickup basketball and nobody's keeping like people are just keeping score in their heads right there's no scoreboard
0: uh, versus
2: versus going and you're playing in a stadium and you've got all the stats on the wall um of which player has been however many fouls and um so it's like the same and all that same
0: players going from a pickup game into the finals. So maybe it's like going from the regular season to the finals. Is that
2: a good one? (laughs) I think there's a lot more transparency provided Mm. in the organized markets because of all the statistics Um, to Jeff's points, all the different price rule pricing rules and price formation. And you can see um, the value of different things versus um, in the bilateral market. You and I may be the only ones that know what we traded our deal at. And that's it Um, where in the organized market, everyone could see what like your resource was paid uh, for its generation in a given hour because it's all transparent.
1: And you have a market monitor. That's also tracking what everybody's doing and mitigating on the spot. If, if, if there's bad behavior. Referees, Uh, we got professional
2: referees uh, versus just calling out fouls uh, on the pickup.
0: So. so if I'm going to make this less about me and less about my analogy and turn it back onto your expertise around the, the transition. So what, given that it's like your scoring is more pronounced, more known, is there any advice that you would have as entities think about the transition around doing that cost benefit analysis, knowing that like the stats are going to change, whether the revenue changes or not is maybe different, but at least the, the stats are going to change in some way? I don't know. What do you think, Carrie? Is there any advice there?
2: Uh, You know, this industry is a never-ending learning curve uh, in every way. Um, And and I think uh, anyone who starts to get into this, like, market design world, you're just like, wow, there's so much to learn and nobody knows it all. And so my advice is, you know, read what's out there um, and become familiar with the, the different markets and different ideas and concepts and um, ask a lot of questions. What uh, so I'm and trying I think, to do, Carrie. That's yeah, the thing and th- things like this are great um, because I think the more people understand and learn about this topic, I think the better. Um, so, okay. And
1: I, I would just say this, and, and I'll I'll pass I'll pass the ball to Jeff. But um, I think it's not always about the cost benefit either. And and maybe a lesson from history is if you look at the energy imbalance market. It started with Pacific in 2014, and now you have 80% of the load in WEC and the EIM. And if you listen to the last few entities that joined the EIM, their cost benefit analysis showed maybe break even for joining the EIM, but the common theme was loss of trading partners and market liquidity in the real-time bilateral. And so I think that's also a huge thing to consider here is as the West transitions to an organized day head market, that's going to absolutely impact liquidity in the bilateral market and trading partners. Once everybody goes into an organized day head market, after the day head market opens, they're getting their energy needs met through the market and they're not going out um, in the same way to, to trade bilaterally. So cost benefits an aspect for sure. But some of these other things that the, the status quo changes as well as the organized market um, comes into the Northwest.
0: The bilateral is not the base case anymore. It right. starts evolving. Interesting. Okay. She, she was passing the ball. To, the greatest sports analogy,
3: Laura, you passed the ball to Jeff. Yeah. I, 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 I think that's good. <laughs> I, I, I think Carrie and, and Laura raised a, a lot of good points on the transition and it is a, a significant change to shift from you know, a bilateral environment to, a, to an organized market structure. And I think we're all seeing the, the opportunity there for aggregate efficiency gains and the benefits that markets can pro- provide. And I think Laura alluded to the EIM being you know, a great example of that. Um, But, you know, on the other hand, I do think at the same time, it's really important to recognize that there already is, you know, for all the the inefficiencies and the clunkiness of the bilateral market, there is an enormous amount of trade that already goes on in the West. You know, just looking at the amount of transactions between BAs, you, you know, you can easily estimate it's on the order of $20 billion a year in terms of overall trade. Uh, going on between entities, and so, you know, I think what we need to recognize is as we move into the day-ahead timeframe, those existing transactions, much of those will shift into the new structure we're developing. So we really need to strive for good design and accurate prices, and 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 just because with that kind of volume of trade, you know, you start looking at each of these design choices, and you realize. Each one of those, to the extent that it has a negative impact, you know, it inefficiently results in prices that are too high or too low, even by a small percentage, can have a pretty significant impact on buyers and sellers, on different regions, on the entities that are trying to evaluate what's right for them. And so I think our benchmark should be we need to evaluate these choices in terms of kind of what we talked about before how do we strive for prices that properly reflect system conditions reflect the cost of meeting load in real time you know trying to tie it back to sports analogy there's always fans that are rooting for either team right and that's natural but the key is the game has to be the rules have to be fair they have to be applied uniformly everyone knows when the game is good and that's kind of what we're striving for.
0: Carrie, I'm going to give you the last word on this one. Do you have any, any takeaways from either is Jeff, right? We'll just put him on the spot. Is Jeff, right?
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with what he said. Um, we got to get the rules right. And that's, that's part of what the West is dealing with right now is we're in all these different forums talking through how do we, how do we build our rules? What are the, you know, what's the structure that um, makes sense and is going to be, um, you know, the most optimal and efficient for, Um, operating the grid reliably and reducing cost to customers. And so. Perfect.
0: Good. Okay. Well, I I had one more that we're going to cover and then we'll close it out. It is. I was going through all of these bunch of analogies, and we haven't talked about transmission yet. Transmission, a very important part of good market design, a backbone of market design in some ways. It's uh, We all like to think of ourselves as a copper sheet, but transmission gets us at least closer to that. Um, so in my analogy, I was thinking of transmission like the stadium or the court or the field where the game gets played i'm wondering if that's right and if so like there's big controversy around who pays for the stadium is it the owner of the team or is it the city that the team is in this is big controversial stuff here so is this analogy close and in, in that case who's paying for the transmission in these structures start with you jeff <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, th- I think I like this analogy. You know, you can have the, the best game, the most entertaining game, but if no one can watch it, then what, what do you really have? Uh, and I think transmission is the same. You know, we can't just add resources. We need to, to get the supply to where it's needed. Um, it's clearly a tough issue. Um, you know, transmission costs and funding, it's a multi-billion dollar issue in the West. So it's something we obviously need to, to really be careful about. Um, But at the same time, we're not starting from scratch. You know, we have an existing framework currently uh, for recovering transmission revenue through the open access transmission tariff through the OAT framework where TSPs are recovering revenue from customers that purchase transmission rights from them. And so... I think as we're looking at evolving Western markets, we have a number of objectives and and constraints, you know, obviously in terms of what we're looking for, we want to maximize the transmission that's available to be used by the market and minimize the application of hurdle rates that might get in the way of the dispatch. Basically, you know, once the stadium's built, we want to fill the seats and I think at the same time, though, we're trying to recognize that we have this existing cost recovery framework. Transmission service providers are recovering revenue from their customers. And a lot of that, for some TSPs, a significant share of their revenue is recovered from third parties that buy their transmission, use it for a variety of purposes meeting load reliably, you know, meeting environmental attributes or trying to recover just the economic value of being able to move power from a lower price location to a higher price location. And so I think where we've got to on this is if we really want to move forward in an incremental way, the best approach would be finding a way to design the market that respects that framework, respects the OAT concept preserves those incentives for customers to continue to invest in the transmission system on a long-term basis through that framework and then establish a market design that doesn't have the onus of trying to deal with these really large dollars and the risks of cost shifts between customers because you know if you get this wrong and you lose the investment in the transmission system it's very likely that you either have additional costs that the the native load customers need to bear uh, in those areas, or you have a bunch of money that you're trying to collect through the market itself, both of which aren't ideal. So I think, you know, a more appealing starting point is to say we want to preserve that owed investment to the maximum extent we can. We reduce the remaining bucket of dollars that are at risk in terms of you know people that no longer purchase transmission and then we have a much smaller problem to solve and it's something we can manage as we move forward into a new market paradigm
0: so it, it, i think it's helpful to think about in our incremental approach maybe one of the trade offs is you have a note structure and you need to use that as much as possible but i am curious like what are the other structures that other markets have chosen for this and how do they compare um, to what we have today and what we're using. So is there any, uh, Carrie or Laura, to kind of chime in, what What are the other markets? How do they, do they, it's a different structure. How do they work or how, are there different choices around the way to fund the stadium or make it work?
1: Yeah, and I can jump in or...
0: Go for it, Laura. Go.
1: Um, so I think... It, all other markets, all other ISOs and RTOs um, for the entire market, the market operator is also the transmission provider. And, okay. and so I think that's a, a really big difference of what we're trying to do in the West where we okay. have 38 different BAs and we have different transmission service providers, different transmission operators that are all keeping their NERC functional responsibilities and we're trying to overlay this organized market on top of it. And so in, a, in all of the other RTOs and ISOs, the way they recover, they have their transmission revenue requirement, they charge that to load and to exports through a transmission access charge for the, the loads and then the wheeling access charge for exports. And entities then don't really have physical transmission rights. The market just uses the transmission. There's a concept of financial transmission rights, but there's not the same where they have physical rights and they get to use those rights or resell those physical rights or redirect them. Um, The market uses that transmission and it's paid for by load and exports. And so in the OAT construct that jeff was describing the tsp is selling physical rights through either network service where the network customers pay based on what they use or point to point transmission service where it's take or pay you buy 100 megawatts you you pay for 100 megawatts whether you use it or not and then you have some rights under the the o to schedule on those to Redirect those to resell those. And so I think there's, uh, we're, we're trying to maintain the OAT structure because we're trying to um, maintain the NERC functional responsibilities of having a market overlay on top of multiple transmission service providers that each have autonomy to set their own rates and how they recover those rates through their tariff. Everybody has a different tariff with different rules. And, um, and so that's what Jeff was alluding to is that we're trying to maintain incentive for, for people to continue to buy that transmission service, rather than now, if the market is moving resources around, we don't want people to just say, well, you know, I don't need my transmission rights anymore. I'm just going to, rely on the market, and that's going to leave the transmission provider short in recovering their revenue, and there needs to be some other kind of mechanism, where whether they increase their transmission rates for their network customers, or the market has some kind of uplift charge that then gets paid back to the TSP, and that bucket of dollars that needs to be recovered ends up being pretty large um, and creating issues there, or, you know, it's an option and it does create an efficiency, but some kind of hurdle rate in the market where in order for resources from one location to get to another, um, use to use the transmission, there's a hurdle rate in, in there's a extra cost to use the transmission in the market. So there's different options that we're talking about. We're trying to get to a design that doesn't use hurdle rates. Um, but we're definitely um covering new ground in that we're no nobody else in the country is has an organized day ahead market without also having the market operator be the transmission provider and the balancing authority and the transmission operator.
0: Yeah, we're covering new ground. One covering of the, the ground yeah. One of the interesting like hypotheses I have is that we're going to need new transmission. Like one of the things that would be helpful in a market expansion and a regional trade organization would be de- transmission development for some for additional ability to move. Is there one construct or another? The uh, the private ownership of the stadium versus the city funding the stadium is one of these approaches like. Do we think better suited towards that next phase, because right now we've been talking about existing transmission lights and recovery of those transmission revenues. Does one of these better help move towards transmission development i I'll, I'll, I'll bring it to you, Carrie, because you haven't spoken about transmission yet, so you get the heart I mean okay. it's yeah, it's, a,
2: well, it's it's a tough issue. so um, there are uh, constructs in the West that exist now to evaluate you know where new transmission should be built um. And whether it should be built, and what you know, where are there issues um, potentially and solutions, and um, and and so far, uh, you know, different projects can come out of those things. Um, but then the question becomes, who pays for it? Who pays uh, for it. and the cost allocation. So who's yeah. going to pay for the stadium? Right. Who's going to pay for the stadium? It um, seems
0: like it's as controversial as actual stadiums.
2: Yeah. Well, and especially in the West, where um, your load centers are really far apart. Uh, compared to perhaps some of the areas in the east and so transmission costs could be expensive to connect load centers Um, and and how do you determine who the who the beneficiaries are of that transmission and therefore should potentially pay for it Um, and in the east we see different methodologies for how um, costs are allocated Uh, and so it's some uh, RTOs use a, a method where, you know, if it's over a certain threshold, then it's shared by everyone on a load ratio share. If it's under a certain threshold, then it's shared a different way. Um, other RTOs do a study and say, okay, you know, these areas were the beneficiaries of the projects so they're going to pay for it and only them. Um, and so that's something that I think if, if the West, uh, you know, continues to evolve and, and there is a, a more, um, I guess coordinated inter-regional transmission organization or whether it's an RTO um, that the West will, will need to think through how what's the appropriate cost allocation methodology for paying for that stadium.
0: Absolutely. Um,
2: and it'll be, it, and we need to be careful about it as, as Jeff said, because it, it we want to get it right. Um, and so that uh, those that are paying for it uh, are, are the, you know, I think that's the principle FERC has set out that, should be paid for by the the beneficiaries of the project, but that can be a hard thing to come to determine, and it can be who, controversial. And
0: who benefits from the stadium? You know, is it right. the, yeah. the people, the the businesses around the stadium, or the owners who gets to right? Right, in the, it's, it's yeah. a very controversial. So it's, it's a it sounds point. like it's it's just as tough well thank you all for for doing this i i I think the end it on transmission and the stadiums was probably a great place because it sounds like it's just as controversial between the two the different mechanisms and how it's done so it it was a it's a great way to end it i really appreciated you all uh being willing to participate in this i've said this before uh this is probably the like the like the cherry on top of a great like electric market enthusiasm series, because I get to talk to like all you experts. It's so much fun for me. So thank you for that. If one other person enjoys this other than me, it was a success. Uh, I hope you all feel valued and appreciated. Carrie, do you feel valued and appreciated?
2: I do. This has been uh, very fun. I appreciate the invite to participate and uh, loved hearing all the responses and comments. So
0: thank you. It was a, you. You all lived up to the expectations of being experts. Laura, do you feel valued and appreciated?
1: Absolutely. I always feel that way talking to you, Paul. So appreciate getting to be on your podcast. And you know, I was hoping for some free merch, but um, nope. <laughs> I still have to pay for it. But, you know, I, I am going to go online and buy buy some because it's it's awesome. So I, well, I need
0: to do. I think the new merch idea is maybe I can find a picture of like a generic stadium and be like something regarding transmission. Because I She's think that is, yeah. that
3: is yeah. who's paying for this. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, do you feel valued and appreciated? absolutely i really appreciate you having me and it's been great to to talk to you all and i, I think we didn't mangle the analogy too much i think it worked so appreciate it i, I,
0: I you'll love to hear it you'll love to hear it
2: Columbia,
0: public power underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective this was the fifth episode in a series on electric market enthusiasm if you found it helpful you can check out the rest of the series on youtube spotify apple podcast or your favorite podcast app if you like our vibe make sure you don't miss the next episode or other great bonus content you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on whatever platform you use to find us. You can also get fabulous merch on Shopify. Just search for Public Power Underground. Starting Public Power Underground is a production of I iPud and News Data. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data to get this podcast, but it sure makes our podcast make a lot more fun sense. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD news data or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. It's written and directed by Clatskanie IPUD's power department led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiasts was rewritten, performed, and recorded we by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bloodso. Public smart, Power Underground for electric utility Those enthusiasts. Public Power Industry Underground, it's work to watch. Interest. We
2: know we aren't perfect, sometimes it's a bust. But we'll roll on, enthusiasts roll on. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Your power's the subject of public power news. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on.